Chapter One of The Place Beyond the Winds. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Place Beyond the Winds by Harriet Teresa Comstock. Chapter One. Priscilla Glenn stood on the little slope leading down from the farmhouse to the spring at the bottom of the garden, and lifted her head as a young deer does when it senses something new or dangerous. Suddenly, and entirely subconsciously, she felt her kinship with life, her relation to the lovely May day which was more like June than May, and a rare thing for Kenmore, whose seasons lapsed into each other as calmly and sluggishly as did all the other happenings in that spot known to the canadian indians as the place beyond the wind the inn place across priscilla's straight young shoulders lay a yoke from both ends of which dangled empty tin pails destined sooner or later to be filled with that peculiarly fine water of which nathaniel glenn was so proud nathaniel glenn never loved things in a human tender fashion but he was proud of many things proud that he and his before him had braved the hardships of farming among the red rocky hills of kenmore instead of wrenching a livelihood from the water this capacity for tilling the soil instead of gambling in fish had made of glenn and a few other men the real aristocracy of the place nathaniel's grandfather with his wife and fifteen children had been the first white settlers of kenmore so eager had the indians been to have this first glen among them that it is said they offered him any amount of land he chose to select and glen had taken only so much as would ensure him a decent farm and prospects this act of restraint had further endeared him to the natives and no regret was ever known to follow the advent of the estimable gentleman the present glen never boasted he had no need to the plain statement of fact was enough to secure his elevated position from mean attack nathaniel had taught himself to read and write a most unusual thing and naturally he was proud of that he was proud of his stern bleak religion that left no doubt in his own mind of his perfect interpretation of divine will he was proud of his handsome wife twenty years younger than himself inwardly he was proud of that within himself which had been capable of securing theodora where other men had failed theodora had caused him great disappointment but nathaniel was a just man and he could not exactly see that his disappointment was due to any deliberate or malicious act of theodora it was only when his wife showed weak tendencies toward making light of the matter that he hardened his heart in the face of his great desire and his modest aspirations theodora had borne for him that was the only way he looked at it five children all girls when she very well knew a son was the one thing in the way of offspring that he had expected or wanted the first child was as dark as a little indian so dark explained nathaniel that she would have been welcome in any house on a new year's day she lasted but a year and while she was a regret she had been tolerated as an attempt at least in the right direction then came the second girl a soft pale creature with ways that endeared her to the mother heart so tragically that when she died at the age of two theodora rebelliously proclaimed that she wanted no other children this blasphemy shocked nathaniel beyond measure 
and when a year later twin girls were born on lonely farm he pointed out to his wife that no woman could fly in the face of the almighty with impunity and she must now see in this double disgrace of sex her punishment theodore was stricken but the sad little sisters early escaped the bondage of life and the glens once again childless and alone viewed the future superstitiously and with awe even nathaniel hope gone as to a son resignedly accepted the fate that seemed to pursue him then after five years priscilla was born the lustiest and most demanding of all the children she seems said long jean the midwife to be made of the odds and ends of all the others she has the clear dark skin of the first the blue eyes of the second and the rusty colored hair and queer features of the twins between long jean and mary terhune midwives a social rivalry existed on account of her indian taint long jean was less sought in aristocratic circles but so great had been the need the night when priscilla made her appearance that both women had been summoned and long jean arriving first and her superior skill being well known was accepted when she announced the birth and sex of the small stranger nathaniel smoking before the fire in the big clean bare living-room permitted himself one reckless defiance not wanted long jean made the most of this and his pretty wife at the point of death she gossiped to mrs mcadam of the white fish lodge and there is this to say about the child being a girl the lure of the states can't touch her and nathaniel may have someone to turn to for care and what not when infirmity overtakes him besides the last may be destined for the doing of big things those witchy brats often are the lure don't get all the boys muttered mary mcadam cautiously thinking of her sandy age five and tom a bit older all as amounts to much long jean returned and in her heart of hearts mary mcadam knew this to be true the time would come to her as it had to all kenmore mothers when she would have to acknowledge that by the power of the lure were her boys to be tested but priscilla at lonely farm showed a hardened disregard of her state she persisted and grew sturdy and lovely in defiance of tradition and conditions she was as keen-witted and original as she was independent and charming still theodora took long before she capitulated and nathaniel never succumbed indeed as years passed he grew to fear and dislike his young daughter the little creature in some subtle way seemed to have found him out she became though he would not admit it a materialized conscience to him she made him doubt himself she laughed at him elfishly and without excuse or explanation once they two sitting alone before the hearth nathaniel in his great chair priscilla in her small one faced each other fearsomely for a time then the child gave the gurgling laugh of inner understanding that maddened the father what you laughing at he muttered taking the pipe from his mouth you priscilla was only seven then but large and strong me how dare you you are so funny if i screw my eyes tight i see two of you then nathaniel struck her not brutally not maliciously he wanted desperately to set himself right by 
old-time and honored methods, force of authority. Priscilla sprang from her chair, all the laughter and joyousness gone from her face. She went close to her father, and leaning toward him as though to confide the warning to him more directly, said slowly, Don't you do that, or Scylla will hate you. It was as if she meant to impress upon him that past a certain limit he could not go. Nathaniel rose in mighty wrath at this, and, white-faced and outraged, darted toward the rebel, but she escaped him and put the width of the room and the square deal table between them. Then began the chase that suddenly sank into a degrading and undignified proceeding. Around and around the two went, and presently the child began to laugh again as the element of sport entered in. So Theodore came upon them, and her deeper understanding of her husband's face frightened and spurred her to action. In that moment, while she feared, she loved, as she had never loved before, her small daughter. If the child was a conscience to her stern father, she was a materialization of all the suppressed defiance of the mother, and, ignoring consequences, she ran to Priscilla, gathered her in her arms, and over the little, hot, panting body confronted the blazing eyes of her husband. And Nathaniel had done nothing, said nothing. In a moment the fury outwardly subsided, but deep in all three hearts new emotions were born never to die. After that there was a triangle truce. The years slipped by. Theodora taught her little daughter to read by a novel method which served the double purpose of quickening the keen intellect and arousing a housewifely skill. The alphabet was learned from the labels on the cans of vegetables and fruits on Theodora's shelves. There was one line of goods made by a firm, according to its own telling, high in the favor of their majesty's so-and-so, that was rich in vowels and consonants. When Priscilla found that by taking innocent-looking little letters and stringing them together like beads, she could make words she was wild with delight and when she discovered that she could further take the magic words and by setting them forth in orderly fashion express her own thoughts or know another's thoughts she was happy beyond description father she panted at that point her hands clasped before her her dark blue-eyed face flushing and paling will you let me go to master farwell to study with the boys Nathaniel eyed her from the top step of the porch, with the boys had been fatal to the child's request. No, he said firmly, the old light of antagonism glinting suddenly under his brow. Girls don't need learning past what their mothers can give them. I do. I'm willing to suffer and die, but I do want to know things. She was an intense atom, and from the first thought, true and straight. A sharp memory was in her mind, and it lent fervor to her words. It related to the episode of the small, fat mustard jar which always graced the middle of the dining table. They had once told her that the contents of the jar were not for little girls. They had been mistaken. She had investigated, suffered, and learned. Well, she was ready to suffer, but learn she must." nathaniel shook his head and set forth his scheme of life for her briefly and clearly you'll have nothing but woman ways bad enough you need them they will tame and keep you safe 
you'll marry early and find your pleasure and duty in your home priscilla turned without another word but there was an ugly line between her eyes that night and the next she took the matter before a higher judge and fervently rigidly prayed on the third night she pronounced her ultimatum kneeling by the tiny gable window of her grim little bedchamber her face strained and intense her big eyes fixed on a red pulsing planet above the hemlocks outside she said dear god i'll give you three days to move his stony heart to let me go to school if you don't do it by then i'm going to worship graven images priscilla at that time was eight and three days seemed to her a generous time limit but nathaniel's stony heart did not melt and at the end of the three days priscilla ceased to pray for many and many a year and forthwith she proceeded to worship a graven image of her own creation a mile up the grassy road beyond lonely farm and on the way toward the deep woods was an open space of rich red rock surrounded by a soft feathery fringe of undergrowth and a few well-grown trees from this spot one could see the channel widened out into the little bay the myriad islands and off to the west the secret and fox portages beyond which lay the great bay where the storms raged and the wind such wind as kenmore never knew howled and tore like a raging fiend in this open stretch of trees and rock priscilla set up her own god she had found the bleached skull of a cow in one of her father's pastures this gruesome thing mounted upon a forked stick its empty eye-sockets and ears filled with twigs and dried grasses was sufficiently pagan and horrible to demand an entirely unique form of worship and this priscilla proceeded to evolve she invented weird words meaningless but high-sounding she propitiated her idol with wild dances and an abandon of restraint before it she had moments of strange silence when with wonder-filled eyes she waited for suggestion and impression by which to be guided very young was she when intuitively she sensed the inner call that was always so deeply to sway her through the years from eight to fourteen priscilla worshipped more or less frequently before her secret shrine the uncanny ceremony eased many an overstrained hour and did for the girl what should have been done in a more normal way the place on the red rock became her sanctuary to it she carried her daily task of sewing and dreamed her long dreams the glens rarely went to church the distance was too great but nathaniel looming high and stern across the table in the bare kitchen morning and night set forth the rigid unlovely creed of his belief this fell upon priscilla's unheeding ears but the hours before the shrine were deeply tenderly religious although they were bright and merry hours of course during the years there were the regular kenmore happenings that impressed the girl to a greater or lesser degree but they were like pictures thrown upon a screen they came they went while her inner growth was steady and sure two families one familiar and commonplace the other more mystical than anything else interested priscilla mightily during her early youth jerry and michael mcalpin with little jerry joe the son of old jerry were vital factors in kenmore they occupied the exalted position of rural expressmen and distributed when various things did not interfere the occasional freight and mail that survived the careless methods of the vicinity 
the McAlpin brothers were hard drinkers, but they were most considerate. When Jerry indulged, Michael remained sober and steady. When Michael fell before temptation, Jerry pulled himself together in a marvelous way, and so, as a firm, they had surmounted every inquiry and suspicion of a relentless government, and were welcomed far and wide, not only for their legitimate business, but for the amount of gossip and scandal they dispersed along with their load. Jerry Joe, the son of the older McAlpin, was four years older than Priscilla, and was the only really young creature who had ever entered her life intimately. The other family, of whom the girl thought vaguely, as she might have of a story, were the Travers of the Far Hill Place. Now it might seem strange to more social minds that people from a different city could come summer after summer to the same spot and yet remain unknown to their nearest neighbors. But Kenmore was not a social community. It had all the reserve of its English heritage combined with the suspicion of its Indian taint, and it took strangers hard. Then, added to this, the Traverses aroused doubt, for no one, especially Nathaniel Glenn, could account for a certain big, heavy-browed man who shared the home life of the hill place without any apparent right or position. For Mrs. Travers, Glenn had managed to conjure up a very actual distrust. She was too good-looking and free-acting to be sound, and her misshapen and delicate son was, so the severe man concluded, a curse, in all probability, for past offenses. The youth of Kenmore was straight and hearty, unless, and here Nathaniel recalled his superstitions, dire vengeance was wreaked on parents through their offspring. With no better reason than this, and with the stubbornness he mistook for strength, Glenn would have nothing to do with his neighbors, four miles back in the woods, and had forbidden the sale of milk and garden stuff to them. All this Priscilla had heard, as children do, but she had never seen any member of the family from the Far Hill Place, and mentally relegated them to the limbo of the damned under the classification of them from the States. Their name, even, was rarely mentioned, and while curiosity often swayed her, temptation had never overruled obedience. The McAlpins, with all their opportunity and qualifications, found little about the strangers from which to make talk. The family were reserved and tough pine. The Indian guide they had impressed into summer service was either bought or, from natural inclination, kept himself to himself. So, until the summer when she was fourteen, Priscilla Glenn knew less about the Far Hill people than she did about the inhabitants of heaven and hell, with whom her father was upon such intimate and familiar terms. Once, when Priscilla was ten, something had occurred which prepared her for following events. It was a bright morning, and the McAlpin boat stopped at the wharf of Lonely Farm. While old Jerry went to the farmhouse with a package, Jerry Joe remained on guard, deeply engrossed in a book he had extracted from a box beneath the seat. He appeared not to notice Priscilla, who ran down the path to greet him in friendly fashion. The boy was about fifteen then, and all the bloods of his various ancestors were warring in his veins. His mother had been a full-blooded Indian from Wyland Island, had drawn her four dollars every year from the English government, and ruled her family with an iron hand. Her father was Scotch-Irish, hot-blooded and jovial. Jerry Joe was a composite result. Handsome, 
moody with flashes of fun when not crossed a good comrade at times an unforgiving enemy he liked priscilla but she was his inferior by sex and she sorely needed discipline he meant to keep her in her place so he kept on reading priscilla at length however attracted his attention hey ho jerry joe hello where did you get the book it's for him up yonder and with this jerry joe stood up turned and twisted his lithe body into such a grotesque distortion that he was quite awful to look upon and left no doubt in the girl's mind as to whom he referred he brought the far hill people into focus sharply and suddenly he has miles of books jerry joe went on and a fiddle and pictures and gigas he plays devil tunes and he's bewitched this description made the vague boy of the woods real and vital for the first time in priscilla's life and she shuddered then jerry joe generously offered to lend her one of the books until his father came back and priscilla eagerly stepped from stone to stone until she could reach the volume once she had obtained the prize she went back to the garden and made herself comfortable wholly forgetting jerry joe and the world at large it was the oddest book she had ever seen the words were arranged in charming little rows and when you read them over and over they sang themselves into your very heart they told you lilting along of a road that no one but you ever knew a road that led in and out through wonders of beauty and faded at the day's end into your heart's desire your heart's desire and just then jerry joe cried hey there you priscilla come down with that book your heart's desire priscilla's eyes were misty as she repeated the words indeed one large full tear escaped the blue eyes and lay like a pitiful kiss on the fair page where there was a broad generous space for tears on either side of the line hist father's coming then priscilla stood up and a demon seemed to possess her i'm not going to give it back to you it's mine she cried shrilly jerry joe made as if he were about to dash up the path and annihilate her but she stayed him by holding the book aloft and calling if you do i'll throw it in the channel she looked equal to it too and jerry joe swore one angry word and stopped short then the girl's mood changed quite gently and noiselessly she ran to jerry joe and held the open book toward him his keen eye fell upon the tear stain but his coarser nature wrongly interpreted it you imp he cried you spat upon it but priscilla shook her head no it's a tear she explained and oh jerry joe it is mine listen you cannot take it away from me and standing there upon the rock she repeated the words of the poem her rich voice rising and falling musically and poor jerry joe hypnotized by that which he could not comprehend listened open-mouthed and now again it was spring and priscilla was fourteen standing in the garden path her yoke across her shoulders her ears straining at the sound she heard the old poem returned to her as it had not for years she faltered over the words at the first attempt but with the second they rushed vividly to her mind and seemed set to the music of that pat 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 sound on the water an unaccountable excitement seized her that new but thrilling sense of nearness and kinship to life and the lovely meaning of spring she was no longer a little girl looking on at life 
She was part of it, and something was going to happen after the long shut-in winter. And presently the McAlpin boat came in sight around Lone Tree Island, and in it stood Jerry Jo, quite alone, paddling straight for the landing-place. For a moment Priscilla hardly knew him. The winter had worked a wonder upon him. He was almost a man. He had the manners, too, of his kind. He ignored the girl on the rocks. But he had seen her, seen her before she had seen him. He had noted the wonderful change in her, for eighteen is keen about fourteen, particularly when fourteen is full of promise and belongs, in a sense, to one. The short, ugly frock Priscilla wore could not hide the beauty and grace of her young body. The winter had wiped out forever her awkward length of limb. Her reddish hair was twisted on the top of her head and made her look older and more mature. Her uplifted face had the shining radiancy that was its chief charm, and as Jerry Joe looked, he was moved to admiration, and for that very reason he assumed indifference and gave undivided attention to his boat. End of chapter 1 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen Gilbert, Arizona.